0: This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish Hour. This week, I'll start reading from JTA. Many Jews criticized Harvard's October 7th response. Fewer are applauding President Claudine Gay's resignation. By Andrew Silo Carroll. The pressure that built on Harvard's President Claudine Gay To resign began after what many thought was a tepid campus response to the Hamas attacks of October 7th. It mounted following a disastrous congressional appearance, in which she and two other university presidents gave lowerly answers in response to grilling about anti-Semitism on campus. But by the time Gay actually did resign this week, following a flurry of plagiarism allegations that drained her support, The anti-Semitism debate was relegated largely to the sidelines. Instead, thanks to outside political actors and deep-pocketed insiders with an array of ideological axes to grind, the resignation of Harvard's first black president took on wider significance than a campus dispute over anti-Semitism and free speech. As a result, Jewish concerns about anti-Semitism receded, or have been attached to other issues in ways that are already heightening black Jewish tensions and drafting Jews into ideological battles many never signed up for. As a result, some Jewish groups appear to be laying low, lest they get drawn into the discourse. We didn't call for her head, Laura Shaw Frank, Director of Contemporary Jewish Life at the American Jewish Committee said in an interview. What we want is to create campus spaces that are secure and positive experiences for Jewish students and Jewish faculty and Jewish members of the community. We are under no illusion that a president is the only person who dictates campus culture. AJC did not issue a statement on Gay's resignation. That doesn't mean we like what happened at the congressional hearing, which was absolutely horrible, said Shaw Frank, but the fact that there have been people who are calling for her resignation, doesn't mean that the entire Jewish people should be labeled as fighting for her resignation. Among the Jews seeking Gay's ouster and shaping the discourse around her presidency was Harvard grad Bill Ackman, the Jewish hedge fund manager and Harvard donor who tied her tenure to the fight against diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, whose most vocal opponents are conservatives who say DEI programs instill a rigid leftist ideology. In a lengthy post on X, X after Gay stepped down, Ackman said Harvard's DEI office expresses a philosophy that is the root cause of anti-Semitism at Harvard. This is the beginning of the end for DEI in America's institutions, agreed the conservative activist Christopher Rufo, who played a lead role in spreading the plagiarism allegations in response to Gay's resignation. In a Wall Street Journal essay Thursday, Rufo boasted about the reputational, financial, and political campaign he orchestrated to squeeze gay out. Defenders of gay in turn fired back against a campaign they saw as racist, sexist, and whipped up by the anti-woke right. So they're using the guise of pretending that this is about concern over anti-Semitism, which is of course something that all of us should be concerned about. It's really just furthering their propaganda campaign against racial equity. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the New York Times journalist who faced conservative attacks in a tenure battle at the University of North Carolina, told CNN. Perhaps because the discourse around gay had become so muddled, involving plagiarism, charges of misogyny and racism, conservative attacks on DEI, donor pressure, questionable leadership and anti-Semitism, Many of the major Jewish groups were either silent or muted in the wake of her decision. One of the few statements forthrightly welcoming her resignation came from a group that didn't exist before the war, the Harvard Jewish Alumni Alliance, launched in November to fight what it called the toxic culture on campus. In her repeated failures to condemn calls for complete and utter obliteration of Jews, Claudine Gay tacitly encouraged those who sought to spread hate at Harvard, where many Jews no longer feel safe to study, identify, and fully participate in the Harvard community, spokesperson Ronnie Brunn said in a statement. The most important of the groups fighting anti-Semitism, the Anti-Defamation League issued a terse statement alluding to the plagiarism charges, saying leaders at the highest level are accountable to the highest standards. Whoever emerges to lead the university must embody the highest ideals of integrity and demonstrate moral clarity and total commitment to fight anti-Semitism with zero tolerance in a way we have not fully seen at Harvard. The ADL declined to request for further comment. Harvard Hillel was similarly circumspect in its statement. The most important priority for Harvard Hillel is that our university is a safe and inclusive environment for Jewish students and for all students," Getzel Davis, whose title at Hillel is campus rabbi, said in a statement. We look forward to continuing to work with the next president of Harvard and the rest of the senior university administration to ensure that Jewish students are able to safely express their identities on campus. Davis said Thursday he did not have time in his schedule for an interview. Such groups may have had a good reason to be cautious in claiming Gay's resignation as a victory, especially when some defenders of Gay were accusing Harvard of submitting to pressure from powerful Jewish and pro-Israel alumni, including Ackerman, investor Seth Klarman, businessman Len Blavatnik, and Lloyd Blankfein, former chief executive of Goldman Sachs. How sad but predictable that the same figures and forces enabling the ethnic cleansing and genocidal attacks on Palestinians in Gaza, Ackman, Bloom, Summers, and others, push out the first black woman president of Harvard, wrote the African-American philosopher and presidential hopeful Cornel West, a former member of the Harvard faculty, on X. West appeared to be referring to Edward J. Blum, a conservative Texas legal activist, and former Harvard President Lawrence H. Summers. Both are Jewish. Blum's nonprofit led a successful challenge to Harvard's affirmative action policies earlier this year, but Blum has not appeared to weigh in on Gay's current woes. Summers had tweeted on October 9th that he was disillusioned and alienated over Harvard's response to October 7th, but also did not call for Gay to step down. When she did, He issued a statement saying that he admired Gay for putting Harvard's interests first at what I know must be an agonizingly difficult moment. West's statements went on to connect charges of racism with support for Israel. This racism against both Palestinians and black people is undeniable and despicable, he wrote. I have experienced similar attacks from the same forces in academia, with too many of my colleagues remaining silent. When big money dictates university policy and raw power dictates foreign policy, the moral bankruptcy of American education and democracy looms large. Conspiratorial sentiments like West's, accusing wealthy pro-Israel donors of dictating both university and foreign policy, may not represent the black mainstream, but even black leaders who often ally with Jews against anti-Semitism were disturbed that legitimate concerns about anti-Semitism in speech on campus morphed into a challenge to DAI and the credentials of the first black president and only second woman president in Harvard's history. We start with a conversation about how to protect Jewish students and end up in a conversation about an assault on programs that benefit black and brown people, Cornell William Brooks, a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School, and the former president and CEO of the NAACP said Wednesday on CNN, It's really about an attack on higher education, anti-DEI, and the reason we know that is because her critics spend more time talking about DEI and affirmative action than they can talk about the legitimate concerns about anti-Semitism. A Jewish communal leader who asked not to be named because they wanted to protect their relationships with colleagues in the community said that they heard similar comments from black allies. Like Brooks, such allies are wondering where the defense of Jewish students ends and the attack on DEI begins and are asking if Jews are more interested in a conservative agenda than the fight against anti-Semitism. As a result, many see signs of yet another clash between two groups with a history both of cooperation and deep tension. We already are seeing the backlash, said Derek Penzler, a professor of Jewish history who directs Harvard's Center for Jewish Studies. With so many reasons for Jews and blacks to work together, it is tragic to see these kinds of wedges driven between them. Amy Spitalnik, CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, said people of color who have been allied with Jews believe that anti-Semitism was weaponized to bring down Harvard's first black president. That doesn't take away from the ways in which Gay needed to be held accountable for Harvard's failures, said Spitalnik, whose organizations affiliated Jewish community relations councils often do interfaith and intergroup work. Two things can be true at the same time. The congressional testimony that the presidents gave was horrendous and certainly was indicative of a larger failure on their part in terms of protecting their students. And there were extremists who exploited this situation in a way that doesn't make any of us safer. Jeremy Burton, who is CEO of the Jewish Community Relations Council of Greater Boston, has advocated for Jewish issues on Harvard's campus, said the focus on gay by donors, outsiders, DEI critics, and Jewish activists is a false context for addressing anti-Semitism. She was president for about a month before October 7th, if you count her actual time in office on campus, said Burton. The problems at Harvard University have been building for years, if not decades. Burton cited reports of Israeli faculty and visiting students being harassed, Jewish students in certain departments not being welcomed if they are insufficiently anti-Zionist, and professors investigated for hostility toward Jews and Israeli students. In her brief term, Gay Gay gave a speech at Harvard Hillel saying anti-Semitism has no place at Harvard, and on December 8th attended an interfaith vigil organized by the Harvard chaplains, including Rabbi Davis, grieving for all those killed on October 7th, and the subsequent war the same day she apologized also for the pain she caused in her congressional testimony saying she should have made clear that calls for violence against our jewish community threats to our jewish students have no place at harvard and will never go unchallenged that's not to say that she didn't make serious mistakes said burton but her departure does nothing to get at the root causes on campus At the same time, many are convinced that one of those root causes is DEI, or at least an interpretation that doesn't make room for Jewish concerns. I think buzzwords like DEI are a little imprecise, Jacob Miller, a math major and the Harvard Hillel president, told Fox News Channel. But I do think that it's true that there is a double standard when it comes to anti-Semitic hate speech at Harvard, I do think Jews are looked upon as the oppressors, and our history of being oppressed is ignored. Others are wondering if the prominent role played by Jewish and pro-Israel donors will give fodder to anti-Semites. Robert Reich, the former U.S. Secretary of Labor, wrote in The Guardian that pressure brought by wealthy donors at Harvard and other schools was an abuse of power. He also warned about the optics of Jewish and pro-Israel donors wielding their wealth and influences on campuses. As a Jew, I also cannot help but worry that the actions of these donors, many of them Jewish, many from Wall Street, could fuel the very anti-Semitism they claim to oppose based on the age-old stereotype of wealthy Jewish bankers controlling the world, wrote Reich. Ruth Weiss who during and after her long tenure as a professor of Yiddish literature at Harvard criticized what she sees as the university's tilt to the left, says such concerns are misplaced. Anti-Semitism has nothing to do with the Jews. Anti-Semitism has to do with the anti-Semites, said Weiss, author of the 2007 book Jews and Power. Jews should never go on the defensive when they haven't done anything wrong. It's a great moral error. Weiss says donors said donors were only reacting to a war against Israel in academia, where Israel's legitimacy is questioned and where it's being taken for granted that the Arabs and the Muslims could not accept the principle of coexistence. Gay's critics, Weiss continued, are not the ones who brought in DEI and they're not the ones who brought in foul teachings to replace American teachings. When they act to try to improve the university, they act as Americans. And if we Jews have a special role now, it's because of the war against us. Weiss is famously conservative, but across the spectrum of Jewish opinion, there has been an emerging consensus that since the war, Jewish students feel under siege. The political storm swirling around Gay's resignation, however, threatens to sweep away that consensus and force potential allies to take sides. Yes, we have a problem with anti-Semitism at Harvard, just like we have a problem with Islamophobia and how students converse with each other, said Penslar, who describes himself as left of center. The problems are real, but outsiders took a very real problem and proceeded to exaggerate its scope. And now we go over to Jewish Insider. Israeli Defense Ministries day after planned for Gaza, international forces working with local Palestinians, not the P.A by Lahav Harkov. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant plans to present the War Cabinet with a roadmap for the administration of Gaza after the end of the war, in which Israel, an international force, Egypt, and local Palestinians, but not the Palestinian Authority, would all play a part, Gallant said in a briefing on Thursday. After the war, he said Hamas will not rule Gaza, and Israel will not rule Gaza. Gallant's plan, drawn up by the Defense Ministry with input from the IDF, is based on four major partners. First is Israel, which would need full freedom to act militarily in Gaza to ensure that Hamas and other hostile groups cannot threaten Israel or the people of Gaza, Gallant said. Israel would also provide relevant intelligence to the other partners and would inspect all goods entering Gaza. Galant ruled out any Israeli civilian presence in Gaza. Israeli Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich floated the ideas of Israelis resettling Gaza, and together with National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, has called for hundreds of thousands of Gazans to migrate elsewhere, ideas that the State Department earlier this week called inflammatory and irresponsible. On Tuesday, a senior Israeli diplomatic source called Smotrich and Ben-Gvir's comments baseless delusions saying that no country is going to absorb any significant number of Palestinians. The second prong of the Defense Ministry's day-after plan is Egypt, a central player in any solution, Gallant said, noting that there are ongoing talks on the matter with Cairo. Egypt would be the point of civilian entry into Gaza and would share control with Israel over who and what is permitted to enter. An international force that would be led by the U.S. and include Western European states, including the U.K., France, and Germany, as well as moderate Arab states like the UAE and Bahrain, would be responsible for the physical and economic rehabilitation of Gaza. Finally, local Palestinians would handle the everyday administration of Gaza. Galant cited 30,000 Palestinian civil servants who currently reside in Gaza, handling matters such as sewage and electricity. The Defense Ministry has lists of such people who are not hostile to Israel or otherwise affiliated with Hamas and would share such information with the international force. Palestinians live in Gaza and the people who need to be responsible for Gaza are Palestinians on the condition that they are not hostile to Israel and will not act against it, Gallant said. The matter of who will enforce law and order in Gaza is still under discussion, the source said. Absent from Gilad's plan is a role for the Palestinian Authority. A senior diplomatic source said that the PA cannot be part of the process because it cannot and should not take control of Gaza. For the PA to take responsibility, it has to commit to fixing itself. Therefore, it is not immediately relevant, the source said. Pointing out that even the U.S. uses R-words, such as revitalized or reformed, when it calls for PA involvement. The Defense Ministry has discussed post-war Gaza with the White House, State Department and Pentagon, as well as European partners and Gulf States, the source said. The day-after plan will only be relevant after Israel reaches its war aims of securing the release of the hostages and ensuring that Hamas is no longer capable of controlling Gaza or threatening Israel, Kalant said, adding that the time is ripe to discuss the matter because Israel is moving to a different mode of fighting. At this point, Israel is working to wear down pockets of resistance that remain in the territory while advancing a governmental alternative that is not hostile to Israel, Galant stated. In northern Gaza, he said, the IDF will move to a phase of raids, destroying tunnels and special operations on land and from the air. In the South, Israel will prosecute the war differently and in a more targeted fashion against Hamas' leadership and to try to free the some 130 hostages. And next from the Jewish Insider, Washington Post under fire for repeated anti-Israel bias, systemic sloppiness in Me- Middle East coverage by Matthew Castle. As leading mainstream news outlets continue to navigate the pitfalls of covering the Israel-Hamas war, The Washington Post is facing particularly intense scrutiny over a growing number of issues connected to its reporting on the conflict, fueling mounting concern among Jewish leaders, foreign policy experts, and even some staffers, among other critics. The most prominent source of contention has in recent weeks centered on a factually challenged front-page story published in mid-November, that detailed the struggles of premature Palestinian infants born in the West Bank in Israel, who were separated from their parents amid Israel's ongoing war in Gaza. In an extensive editor's note added to the story last week, after more than a month's delay, the paper listed multiple inaccuracies in the original article, effectively undermining its core thesis, that Palestinian mothers were required by the Israeli government to return to Gaza when their travel permits had expired. Meanwhile, the note also acknowledged that the triple byline feature had not initially sought comment from Israeli officials, an omission that fell short of the post's standards for fairness. Though the paper admitted culpability in its mishandling of a politically sensitive subject, The editor's note still left some questions unresolved, including why the story chose not to identify the hospitals or medical workers it cited anonymously. The story had, without evidence, attributed its decision to protecting staff members who fear reprisals from Israeli authorities, but critics have cast doubt on that claim, noting that NBC News published a similar story just a few weeks later on two of the parents cited in the Post article, And the outlet was for its part able to name the hospital in East Jerusalem as well as the head of its neonatal unit. It is unclear why the editor's note took more than a month to produce. Before it was appended to the top of the article during the holiday break last week, the story had raised eyebrows among some post staffers who privately expressed reservations that it did not meet the newspaper's rigorous rigorous editorial standards according to a source familiar with the matter. a spokesperson for the Post declined to comment on this story and did not address questions sent by Jewish Insider on Thursday afternoon, referring instead to the editor's note. Robert Satloff, the executive director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, whose sustained criticism of the recent Post story helped contribute to the publication of the editor's note, said he was pleased that the paper had ultimately recognized some of its mistakes, but he added that he remains frustrated with the broader thrust of its Middle East coverage, which he views as flawed. I believe the egregious violations of journalistic standards I highlighted in my critique of the November 17th story is regrettably not limited to this article, he said in an email to Jewish Insider. In addition to the story on Palestinian infants, At least two other articles authored by its lead reporter, Louisa Lovelock, have drawn significant corrections in recent weeks, raising questions about the paper's commitment to accurate and balanced coverage of the evolving war between Israel and Hamas. The paper had also faced accusations that its Middle East coverage has veered into activism, presenting a one-sided picture of the conflict that has differed in many ways from the stories seen in competing outlets like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, which have produced some of the most searing coverage of Hamas's October 7th attack while also reporting aggressively on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. In contrast, with The Times for instance, this week broke this, which this week broke the story on the newly declassified US intelligence bolstering Israel's claims that Hamas used the al shifra hospital In Gaza, as a command center, the Post has, for its part, been fiercely skeptical of that determination. The paper concluded in its own analysis last month that the evidence presented by the Israeli government falls short of showing that Hamas had been operating out of the hospital. The Post acknowledged the new assessment from U.S. spy agencies in a separate article on Wednesday, while continuing to assert that such claims have been challenged by a lack of conclusive proof. To some readers who have taken issue with the Post's coverage, its skepticism of U.S. and Israeli intelligence findings has been especially troubling because, according to critics, the newspaper has otherwise continued to uncritically cite Palestinian casualty figures provided by the Gaza Health Ministry, which reporters have habitually refrained from identifying as a Hamas-controlled agency. The newspaper has also been accused of amplifying unverified claims from Hamas's media office. Meanwhile, the Post has faced criticism for the language it has used to de- characterize the war. In November, for example, the paper came under fire for describing as captives, Palestinian prisoners who were being released by Israel in a negotiated exchange for hostages held by Hamas and other terror groups, drawing an allegation of editorial bias from Jonathan Greenblatt, the chief executive of the Anti-Defamation League, who called the Post's word choice absolutely shameful. In an unorthodox editorial decision that departs from most other competing national outlets, the papers framed its coverage of Israel's war with Hamas as the Israel-Gaza war, rather than casting the fight as Israel's battle against Hamas. Last November, some staffers at The Post also reportedly signed an open letter claiming that newsrooms are accountable for dehumanizing rhetoric that has served to justify ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. The paper's approach to Middle East coverage has been an ongoing source of frustration among Israeli officials in Washington. In an early November meeting, for instance, top Israeli embassy officials met with newsroom leadership, including Sally Busby, the paper's executive director, and Douglas Jell, who directs international coverage, to privately air their concerns, according to a source familiar with the matter. Soon after the conversation, however, the Post unveiled its now-amended story on Palestinian infants, which did not originally seek comment from Israeli officials, but was later updated to include a statement. Busby and Jell did not respond to requests for comment on the meeting. Tal Naim, the spokesperson for the Israeli embassy, declined to comment on the meeting, but did not deny that it had had taken place. As part of the embassy's routine media outreach in Washington, we meet with various journalists, editors, and news organizations on a regular basis, she said in a statement to Jewish Insider on Thursday. These activities serve to maintain an open line of communication, with the American news media and are not limited to any one outlet in particular. We do not comment on the content of these private engagements. While the Times and the Journal, among other outlets, have also drawn scrutiny for some alleged reporting errors as well as suggestions of slanted coverage, critics of the Post claim the paper has distinguished itself as a leading repeat offender. The quality control issues have come at a rocking moment for the financially struggling newspaper, which last October announced a plan to cut 240 jobs. In recent weeks, The Post has been shedding staff as some of its most experienced reporters have taken buyouts. Busby, who previously led the Associated Press and served as its Middle East regional editor in Cairo before joining The Post in 2021, has strained to recapture the momentum the paper built during the Trump administration when uh, Marty Barron, the former longtime editor, oversaw an increase in subscriptions. Busby also seems to have struggled to balance competing internal sensitivities around the Israel-Hamas war, which has become a divisive issue in newsrooms. Last November, the paper deleted an editorial cartoon criticizing Hamas that was accused of racism, A decision that Busby, in an email to staff, attributed to the many deep concerns and conversations voiced by newsroom employees. In contrast with Busby's brief tenure atop the Post masthead, Barron, who stepped down at the beginning of 2021, faced less criticism over the paper's Middle East coverage. Shortly after Hamas's attack in early October, Barron, in an interview with Jewish Insider, characterized the massacre as an unprovoked act of state terrorism, even as he acknowledged that Post stories have typically described Hamas as a militant organization. Barron declined to weigh in, however, on recent backlash to the Post's coverage of the war. I'm not going to comment on any of this, he said in an email to Jewish Insider on Thursday. And now we'll go over to JTA again. Dozens of Penn professors spent the week in Israel following their university president's anti-Semitism resignation by Deborah Denon. After October 7th, Michael Kahana joined hundreds of his colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania, in signing an open letter condemning Hamas and expressing support for Israel and its right to self-defense, but the psychology professor wanted to do more. So Kahana sent an email to the three hundred and forty signatories on the letter, which came amid scathing criticism of Penn's response to Hamas's attack on Israel, and invited them on a trip. This week, the thirty-nine Penn professors who took Kahana up on the invitation, spent three days traveling in Israel in the first solidarity visit by faculty members of an Ivy League school since the outbreak of the war on October 7th and the congressional hearing on campus anti-Semitism that led directly to the resignation of Penn's president. Many but not all of the professors on the trip were Jewish and some were visiting Israel for the first time. During their 66-hour visit, they met with Israeli president Isaac Herzog, and families of hostages, including Rachel Goldberg, the Israeli-American mother of Hirsch Goldberg Poland, who has emerged as a stalwart voice advocating for the more than 130 people still held by Hamas in Gaza. In what has become a new rite of passage for visitors to Israel, they also visited devastated Gaza border communities where they heard accounts from survivors and first responders, according to a statement released by the mission's tour operator Israel Destination. The significant focus of the mission was meeting with academic colleagues from major Israeli institutions, the statement said, including the Hebrew University, Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, Tel Aviv University, to allow for a deeper mutual understanding of the challenges posed to academia by war and conflict on one side, and anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiments on the other. The delegation also met with Penn alumni living in Israel and heard from Israeli officials, including Amir Yaron, the governor of the Bank of Israel, who previously was a professor at Penn's Wharton School of Business during a banquet at Tel Aviv's Anu Museum, the Museum of the Jewish People. I was truly surprised to see how much our visit meant to our Israeli colleagues and by my own overwhelming emotional response to hearing from Israelis firsthand cinema and media studies professor P. D. Dircheny, who worked with Kahana to organize the trip, said in a statement. The delegation took place amid a backdrop of tension at Penn, which was already embroiled in an anti-Semitism controversy surrounding a Palestinian writers' conference on campus when Hamas attacked Israel. President Liz McGill resigned in December shortly after being called to testify before Congress about campus anti-Semitism and refraining from saying that calling for the genocide of Jews was a violation of the university's code of conduct. Penn's board president also resigned and has been replaced temporarily by Julie Platt, who also chairs Jewish Federations of North America. While the group was in Israel, a second college president, who took the same stance during the congressional hearing, stepped down. Harvard University's Claudine Gay also faced allegations of plagiarism that emerged as her critics took aim following the university's initial response to Hamas's attack. Kahana pointed to the global academic community's failure to express support to Israeli academics after October 7th. Academic communities are incredibly small, tight-knit families that span the globe, Kahana said according to the statement when the horrific trauma of October 7th struck the Israeli academic community, people awaited words of comfort from their close colleagues and friends, but for many, those words did not come. Kahana and Darcheni barely knew each other prior to organizing the trip, even though they have worked on the same campus for years. In fact, many of the Penn professors from varied disciplines like statistics, film, and orthopedics had never met before the mission. Now the professors are returning home with a greater understanding of how the U.S. academic community can support their Israeli colleagues during this traumatic time and with renewed vigor to withstand the anti-Semitism and anti-Israel feelings prevalent on campus, the statement said. Der Cheney explained uh, expressed his hope that the visit would inspire more university communities to move past divisive cultures and come themselves. According to 'er Ya'er Jablinovitz from Israel Destination, which specializes in educational tourism, since the Penn mission became public, the tour operator has received dozens of inquiries into similar visits from representatives at other universities, including Harvard, Columbia, Yale, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, many of which are, like Penn, facing federal Department of Education investigations over their handling of anti-Semitism complaints. There is definitely now a drive to go on to these type of delegations, he told JTA. The Penn delegation had an influence not only on the academic world in Israel and the people of Israel that they met, but on Ivy League schools throughout North America. And next from JTA, Israel faces charges of genocide at the International Court of Justice. Here's why and how Israel will respond by Ron Campais, Washington. Perhaps the most famous court case in Israeli history was the trial of Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects of the Holocaust. Next week, more than 60 years later, lawyers for the Israeli government will again grapple with an allegation of of genocide, but this time as defendants and not as prosecutors. That grim history helps explain why Israel has chosen to engage with the International Court of Justice which will weigh a claim by South Africa that Israel is committing genocide in its war against Hamas in Gaza. Israel is furious at the accusation which it calls a perversion of the genocide charge. The International Court of Justice will base its judgment on the 1948 UN Genocide Convention, which Israel joined almost as soon as the state was established because the convention was written in the wake of the Holocaust in the hopes of preventing another genocide. Israel decided to send a legal team because this is an outrageous application by South Africa we will defend ourselves against those lies Lior Hayat, the spokesman for Israel's foreign ministry said in an interview. An Israeli official on Friday confirmed confirmed that Malcolm Shaw A British barrister with extensive experience in defending countries facing human rights abuse allegations will be on the team. Ynet News reported that Shaw, who has represented countries including the United Arab Emirates, Azerbaijan, Malaysia, Ukraine, Serbia, Cameroon, Ireland, Cyprus, and Chad, would be one of a team of four people. Rumors had circulated that Alan Dershowitz, the emeritus Harvard law professor and Israel advocate with a record of representing controversial high-profile defendants, will be part of Israel's legal team. His name was not reported alongside Shaw's, and he did not reply to a request for comment. Here's what's behind the accusation, how Israel is defending it, and what to anticipate. Who is adjudicating the accusation and when? The International Court of Justice, based in The Hague in the Netherlands, adjudicates claims against states. In the past, it has considered disputes on everything from maritime border disputes to the United States funding of the Contra Rebel Group in Nicaragua in the 1980s. The court, first convened in 1946, is the culmination of a series of international conferences that aim to adjudicate disputes between nations as a means of preventing war. The court has previously considered cases involving Israel's treatment of the Palestinians, the moving of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and an incident in 1955 in which an El Al flight was shot down over Bulgarian airspace. The International Criminal Court in the same city adjudicates criminal allegations against individuals, such as generals or notorious despots, including Libya's Muammar Gaddafi and Russian President Vladimir Putin. The case was initiated late last month by South Africa, and the first hearings are set for next week, January 11th and 12th. Why is Israel participating? Israel has a tradition of not engaging with war crimes accusations against its officials, in part because it is not party to the 2002 compact that created the International Criminal Court. In light of the United Nations' repeated votes and other measures placing blame on Israel, Israel sees the UN system as irredeemably biased and feels that the charges are likely to be loaded. But Israeli officials say that the charge of genocide is too much for a state born in the ashes of the Holocaust to ignore. The State of Israel will appear before the International Court of Justice at The Hague to dispel South Africa's absurd blood libel, a lawn levy, a government spokesman said on January 2nd. Beyond seeking to state a moral defense against a crime it has prosecuted against Nazi war criminals, There are practical reasons for Israel to participate. The IJC's process may take years, but if after next week's hearing it finds enough evidence to go forward, it may call on the parties in the Gaza war to cease hostilities. Such a court order would establish a legal basis for countries to boycott and isolate Israel and to restrict the movement of its officials if Israel does not comply. Two years ago, Ukraine sought and received a similar order from the court in its efforts to repel Russia's invasion. But while both cases involve genocide, the Russia and Israel trials differ. Ukraine is not accusing Russia of genocide. Rather, it went to the IJC to contest Russia's accusation that Ukraine is committing genocide which Putin had cited as a pretext for the war. Russia, which is massive and has built an insular economy, ignored the order. But Israel, a small country allied with the West, can't afford to make the same choice, said Orda Kitri, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, an influential Washington think tank with close ties to Israel's government. If Israel is ordered to do what Russia was ordered to do, which would be to immediately suspend its military operations, it would certainly be bad for Israel from a PR perspective, said Khitri, who is a law professor at Arizona State University. You don't want to be violating international law. You don't want to be fighting when you've been told to stop. The Biden administration has indicated that it will not honor any injunctions targeting Israel as a result of the genocide charges. We find this submission meritless, counterproductive, and completely without any basis in fact whatsoever, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said on Wednesday. Why is South Africa making the charge? South Africa's government sees itself as a bulwark against what it casts as Western imperialism. It also wants to push back against perceptions in the West that since the end of apartheid in the early 1990s, it has devolved into corruption, authoritarianism, and alliances with repressive regimes. In 2017, it ignored an ICC warrant, or the arrest of then Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir on genocide charges allowing him to enter the country. In addition to the genocide accusation, it has embraced charges that Israel is guilty of apartheid, the crime of institutionalized racial discrimination that was South Africa's hallmark under under white minority rule for decades. Its leaders have never forgiven Israel for cozying up to the apartheid regime. Its parliament in November, in a non-binding vote, said the government should expel Israeli uh, diplomats. South Africa has been engaged on the Palestinian issues since really the end of apartheid and the founding of the state, Michael Walsh, a visiting scholar at the University of California, Berkeley, told Vox. It's been a prominent issue in South African politics and among South African leaders. What is the basis for the genocide accusation? Pro-Palestinian activists and anti-Zionist figures have been accusing Israel of genocide since the earliest days of the war. An allegation Israeli and other scholars across the political spectrum has strenuously denied both in this conflict and previous rounds of fighting. A recent letter by a group of Israeli public figures Unconnected with the ICJ case did accuse some Israeli officials of incitement to genocide, though not of the crime of genocide itself. South Africa's charging document in the ICJ case, which outlines what it calls acts of genocide and also intent, relies on many of the same arguments pro-Palestinian activists have made in recent months. The acts are drawn from news accounts of the carnage which, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry, has topped 22,000 Palestinian casualties including thousands of children. That number doesn't differentiate between civilians and combatants. Also included are warnings by international bodies that the population of the enclave is on the verge of mass starvation and disease. The acts in which Israel has engaged are genocidal in character, having regard to their nature, scope, and context, the charging document says. In seeking to establish intent, South Africa quotes statements by Israeli leaders, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, that South Africa claims are genocidal in scope. That is an extraordinarily challenging standard to meet, according to an analysis by Allah HaChem, and Una Hathaway at Just Security, an online security think tank run out of the New York University School of Law. It requires proof of a specific intent to destroy a group in whole or in part. The South African charging document quotes a speech Netanyahu delivered to the Knesset describing the war as a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness. Between humanity and the law of the jungle, which South Africa called a dehumanizing theme to which he returned on various occasions. That quote and some of the others in the document, the FDD's Kitri noted, refer not to the Palestinians as a whole, but to Hamas. Kitry said that Israeli leaders on other occasions have made it clear that their war is with the terrorist group that launched the conflict with massacres that took the lives of some 1,200 people, most of them civilians, on October 7th. Our war against Hamas, the Hamas terrorist organization, is a war. It's not a war against the people of Gaza, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said last month at a press conference with Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Defense Secretary. Other more damning, damning quotes cited in the document come from figures on the far right. It quotes, for instance, Amichai Eliyahu, the minister of heritage who is a, a member of Otzma Yehudit, or Jewish power, who has said there is no such thing as uninvolved civilians in Gaza and has called to nuke the territory. Those figures are not making decisions in the war, Kitri said, the South Africans point to a few statements by members of the Knesset, he said. They take some statements out of context. That may be the case, said Yaniv Rosnai, a law professor at Reichman University of Israel, but it is incumbent on Netanyahu and others to get their allies to avoid indulging fantasies of ethnic cleansing at an extraordinarily risky time. Instead of understanding that words have meanings and that we are in wartime and to watch their mouths and not really say stupid things, Netanyahu and others are trying to explain them, Rosnai said in a podcast for Unacceptable, a group that opposes the massive judicial reforms Netanyahu sought before the war. What will Israel's case be? Kittri said Israel will be able to show it has instituted mitigation measures in its military campaign. Israel's extensive advance, warning, and other measures to mitigate harm to Gaza civilians make clear that Israel's goal is not to commit genocide, but far from it to instead minimize Palestinian civilian casualties while lawfully exercising Israel's rights to rescue its hostages, apprehend the October 7th perpetrators, and ensure that Israel's population is secure from further attacks, he said. Israeli spokespeople have also suggested that Israel will seek to turn the tables and level charges of genocide against Hamas. The Hamas terrorist organization, which is committing war crimes, crimes against humanity, and sought to commit genocide on 7 October, is responsible for the suffering of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip by using them as human shields and stealing humanitarian aid for them, from them the Foreign Ministry's Hayat said in a statement. And next from Variety, the entertainment industry publication, Anthony Hopkins' Holocaust feature One Life amends marketing materials to include Jews following Backlash by K.J. Yosman, The marketing materials for Anthony Hopkins' latest feature film, a Holocaust biopic titled One Life, are set to be amended after controversy ensued over the lack of reference to Jews. One life tells the story of Nicholas Winton, played by Hopkins, better known as the British Oscar Schindler. Winton helped save the lives of over 600 children, the majority of them Jewish, from the Nazis during World War II. But there has been disquiet over marketing for the movie after it was claimed. Jews had been erased from the synopsis. The Fuhrer started after British media retailer HMV tweeted about the film and referred to the children saved by Winton as Central European rather than Jewish. A number of independent cinemas also used the term Central European instead of Jewish while describing the film on their websites. Seesaw Films, who produced One Life, and Warner Brothers Pictures, who were distributing it in the UK, subsequently also came under fire for omitting the word Jewish from their marketing materials when describing the children saved by Winton, although they did not use Central European. Warner Brothers in the United Kingdom declined to comment, but Variety understands that following the criticism, all Warner's official marketing for the film be amended to describe the children as predominantly Jewish, which reflects the fact that while most of the 600-plus Czechoslovakian children were Jewish, a handful of them were non-Jewish political refugees. A source close to the film was keen to stress that the term Central European had not been supplied by the filmmakers or distributors, but suggested it had likely been added by an unauthorized third party on IMDb where it was then picked up by HMV, who has since deleted their tweet, and the independent cinemas. The filmmakers were sensitive to the fact that 100 of the children were not Jewish, they were political refugees, and made a decision that it was important to be inclusive, said the source, who added that the events of October 7th, which saw over 1,200 people killed by Hamas in Israel, did not have any bearing on the film's marketing materials. A BFI press release from August announcing One Life as the gala screening during the London Film Festival did not use the term Central European, nor did it specify the children were Jewish. One Life tells the true story of Sir Nicholas Nicky Winton, a young London broker played by Hopkins, who in the months leading up to World War II rescued 669 children from the Nazis. Is how the BFI described the movie. There was no desire to take away an association with the Jewish community, the source said. There was never any intent to cause offense by the filmmakers. They're very proud of the film. A request has since been logged with IMDb for the synopsis on the site to be changed. Warner Brothers UK site and one of the UK's largest theatrical chains, View, have also amended the synopsis to read predominantly Jewish. Winton's work went largely unacknowledged until in 1988 he appeared on British talk show That's Life. When the host, Esther Ronsman, asked if any of the audience were in the room thanks to Winton, a large portion of them stood up. Ranson had arranged for the survivors and their descendants to attend and surprise him. The scene plays a central role in One Life. Next from JTA Berlin Police Investigating Vandalism of Kinder Transport Memorial Following Pro Palestinian Demonstrations by Toby Axelrod. Berlin. Police in Germany are investigating after a Berlin memorial to the Jewish children rescued from the Nazis was vandalized, including with images of a mosque. The vandalism occurred New Year's Eve during a spate of unauthorized pro Palestinian demonstrations in the German capital, according to Martin Stralau, a spokesperson for the state criminal police. The memorial by the late Frank Meisler. Installed near the Friedrichstrasse commuter train station in 2008, is dedicated to the roughly 10,000 Jewish children who were sent to safety in England on so-called Kinder transports in 1938 and 1939 by Jewish aid organizations. Many never saw their parents and siblings again. Meisler himself escaped Nazi Germany on a Kinder transport and eventually settled in Israel. The memorial features large casts of children holding suitcases. Photos of the vandalism, which depicted buildings with a cross and a crescent, were circulated widely on the Platform X, formerly known as Twitter. The daubing reflects the motif of defining Muslims and Christians as Palestinians who are oppressed by the Israeli state, which has been trending on social media around Christmas, said Benjamin Steinitz, project manager for RIAS, the Anti-Semitism Research and Information Center based in Berlin. We are not aware of other desecrations of that kind, he added. Stralau told JTA that someone who has invested in care for the memorial had informed the police of the vandalism and pressed charges. He said the graffiti has been successfully removed. Though the perpetrators have not been identified, there were numerous arrests on New Year's Eve in Berlin amid the demonstrations, which took place despite a formal ban by German police, who said the rallies could lead to crimes including anti-Semitic displays. The memorial is not the first Holocaust-related site to be defaced amid widespread graffiti tied to the Israel-Hamas war, The Holocaust Library in London also had its sign vandalized and quickly repaired. And next from the Canadian press, Toronto leaders decry appalling hate after suspected arson at Jewish-owned grocer. One of Toronto's deputy mayors said the suspected hate-motivated arson and vandalism of the Jewish-owned grocery store should serve as a wake-up call about a spike in anti-Semitism in the city. Mike Cole, speaking with the Canadian Press, says the suspected arson strikes at the fears of the city's Jewish community and reflects the human cost of appalling hate-motivated violence. The deputy mayor for North Toronto says he met with the owner of the International Delicatessen Foods, who told the councillor he was concerned for his family's safety and worried it could be months before the business reopens. In a statement, Mayor Olivia Chow said these types of incidents leave people feeling shaken and diminish our sense of safety and belonging. No arrests have been made after officers were called to the North Toronto grocery store fire on Wednesday morning to find the words Free Palestine written on the building. Police have warned of a spike in hate crime since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, with a little over half of those reported to be anti-Semitic. Police say between October 7th and December 17th, there were 98 reported hate crimes in Toronto, compared to 48 over the same period in 2022. That number uh, included 56 reported anti-Semitic incidents, compared to 18 over the same period last year. It also accounts for 20 reported incidents targeting Muslims, Arabs, or Palestinians, compared to just 2 over the same period in 2022. Chief Myron Demkew addressed the suspected arson at an unrelated news conference Thursday, calling it an organized criminal act that inflicted great harms in our communities. No stone will be left unturned in this investigation as we seek to bring those responsible to justice, he said. Called the city councilor for Eglinton Lawrence, also decried demonstrators who appear to protest in his ward, because of its significant Jewish population. Police have closed the Avenue Road Bridge over Highway 401 on three recent occasions, citing demonstrations. Jamie Kirzner Roberts, vice president of Greater Toronto Area of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, an advocacy organization, said the Jewish community is feeling nervous, unsettled, and frightened by the latest anti-Semitism in the GTA, but it's not surprised. The Jewish community is scared. We've been very worried that something like this would happen. Now that it's happened, we're scared. We're reeling, she said, Thursday outside of the grocery store. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you for listening.